Welcome to Antelope Road Christian Fellowship. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit myarcf.com. Amen. Okay, um, if anyone needs a Bible, I think we might have a rambunctious volunteer or two who are willing to um, deliver those Bibles to you. If you would need one, raise your hand and they will sprint at full speed. Just kidding. It'll be a saunter. It'll be a slower. Um, but so if you need one, raise your hand and they will, they will bring it. Um, okay, so we're going to be in Daniel. Daniel chapter 1. We are getting ready to start a series on Daniel. I don't think this one start, or counts as the first, uh, the first uh, sermon in this series. I think this is just kind of an intro warm-up. So we're going to read some verses today. I think that Greg will also read them next week. Um, but uh, yeah, we're going to read just a few verses, and we're going to kind of preface ourselves, get ourselves into the mindset of Daniel, what's happening in this, in this book of the Bible, what's happening at this time period in Israel's history. Um, we're just going to go there. We're going to try to um, understand a little bit more um, uh, what these guys are going, going through. Um, so here we go. We will read together Daniel chapter 1. Um, we'll just read verses 1 through 4. During the third year of King Jehoiakim's reign in Judah, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came to Jerusalem and besieged it. The Lord gave him victory over King Jehoiakim of Judah and permitted him to take some of the sacred objects from the temple of God. So Nebuchadnezzar took them back to the land of Babylonia and placed them in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, his chief of staff, to bring to the palace some of the young men of Judah's royal family and other noble families who had been brought to Babylon as captives. Select only strong, healthy, and good-looking young men, he said. Make sure they are well-versed in every branch of learning, are gifted with knowledge and good judgment, and are suited to serve in the royal palace. Train these young men these young men in the language and literature of Babylon. And we'll stop there. Um, we're going to stop there because if, uh, if you're new to the Bible, we just read like a thousand words that you can't even pronounce without reading them over and over again. Um, but just as a brief history lesson, um, the, the land of Israel at this, part had, at this time had been divided into two kingdoms. Uh, shout out to my dad, who's teaching a Wednesday night uh, Bible study through First Kings. Uh, if you have been there, you know way more about this than I do, so good on you. Um, but the kingdom gets divided. There were 12 tribes of Israel, and they decide that we're going to split. There's, there's the 10 tribes who go to the north, and there's two tribes who stay to the south. And the most notable tribe that stays to the south is the tribe of Judah. So the lower kingdom is called the kingdom of Judah. And the northern kingdom keeps the name, um, the kingdom of Israel. The kingdom of Israel gets captured, um, besieged by Assyria long before this takes place. And Judah is holding on strong. But here we find King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon comes to Jerusalem, the capital city of of Judah, and besieged it. Uh, Interesting note. The word Judah is where we get the word Jew 
So that's why sometimes we refer to people as Hebrews or as Jews. It, they both kind of, it's people from Hebron, which is Israelites. And there's like three different words to refer to the same group of people. Um, very slightly different. Um, but so he, he comes and he, he besieges that city and just totally takes it over. The northern kingdom had already been wiped out, and here now the southern kingdom is, is being wiped out, um, being exiled. They are taking captive uh, people. But not only that, he said he, that, he, that he took the sacred items from the temple of God and was like, hey, these look cool. I'm going to put them into the temple of my God instead, um, which is just about the worst thing that you could do at this point in Israel's history. We have a couple of very sacred things that God has given us. The Ark of the Covenant that's like solid gold or it's covered in gold and it's, you know, it has a jar of manna. It has Aaron's staff that budded. It's, it's like, it has a scroll. It, it's, it is Israel's history in a nutshell right there. And, and, and King Nebuchadnezzar is like, that looks pretty. I want that. And they take it. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's like if someone came into, you know, the White House and just took out any, or, you know, they go to the Smithsonian and, and take out any his, significant historical document. And it's like, wait, that's ours. No, no, please. Um, or uh, even worse, for an analogy, it's like, uh, for you sports fans, if someone just strips the football straight out of the quarterback's hands and takes it to the house. You're like, no, that was ours. That way it was our ball. Um, but obviously on a much worse level, they, he, he steals it and he desecrates it to say, this thing that used to represent your God, Israel, now it's going to be for our God. We're going to use it to worship our God. And then we get to uh, the heart of the book of Daniel, is this guy Ashpenaz uh, is instructed to seek out the best of the best of uh, the young men of Judah. The, the ones who are in the royal family lineage, the ones who are already super smart and good-looking. That's nice. Um, and make sure that they can learn everything. We're going to teach them everything. They're already really smart. Let's make sure that we can teach them in our ways. Um, and I don't know about you, but that just hurts my heart. Um, we just watched a video. We saw a bunch of pictures of the Bible Day Camp kids. Can you imagine a group of people who are known to hate us, coming into to our tribe, into our group, and seeking out, we'll just take the ones that you like the most. <laughs> I'm just kidding, not the ones you like the most. We'll, we'll, we'll just take the ones that we like the most, and we're going to take them away, and we're going to train them up in our ways instead. Um, it would feel devastating. If, if some people from a foreign cult came in and said, I know that you have been training up a child in the way that they should go. We're going to take that child and train them up in our ways instead. That's where we're at here in Babylon. Taking young men. At this point in history, and for most of human history, in fact, you were an adult once you were 13. So to be a young man is to be... A teenager to be a youth is maybe even to be younger than a teenager. Um, so these are young people. I always like to picture Daniel as this, you know, really sturdy man in his twenties or thirties or something. But no, he's he's a teenager. 
At this point, he's younger than me. And, and, he's, and he's being taken away from his homeland, being trained up in something new. Um, and, and that's terrifying. Even more terrifying, easier for you to uh, imagine if you're a parent who has had teenagers. Um, teenagers maybe who are like beginning to get a little rebellious and like beginning to, you know, some days they really like you, some days, some days they don't. I don't know this as a parent, I just know it as a former teenager. That it's like, dad, I love you. Dad, I hate you. Mom, I love you. Mom, I hate you. You know, it's just like day to day, flips back and forth. What, who am I? What am I doing? And to be right in the middle of that, like, confusing, conflicting time, and then suddenly be, like, stripped away from your parents. And now you have to figure it out again. Tragic enough for, for the, the teenager, but how much more tragic for the parents. Um, so this, this is an awful, awful time that we're in. Uh, we make jokes sometimes about how much money we owe to China. And it's like, well, you know, they could just kind of take us, I guess, if they want you know, uh, kind of a joke, but, but like, could you imagine if, if uh, one of our neighbors um, came in and just and took everyone? I like to imagine that it's Canada, because that would be the nicest invasion of all time. Um, <laughs> if they came in and said, okay, here we go, eh? And just took all the young people and trained them up in politeness and, and uh, horse riding and curling. Um, but... Uh, but, but to be taken away to a foreign land and to be trained up in a way that's unfamiliar to you uh, is, is a terrifying thing. And that's what these guys are, are going into. Not, e- not just that it's a foreign land, but it's something that's entirely opposed to everything that you have been taught. Um, uh, this last Wednesday with the youth group, we read Psalm 139, which is a beautiful psalm, but kind of the heart of it. Is, is the psalmist says, God, you know that there are people who hate you, and I hate them because they hate you. Would you slay them? Would you just get rid of them? Which is an intense thing to pray. And we're like, are we allowed to pray this? I'm not sure if we're allowed to pray this. Um, but because of how passionate they are for the Lord, when people outright just hate the Lord and hate his people, um, there, is a, there is this feeling of... of, of righteous anger, this zeal, um, and to have those people that, that you are so against for them to come in and take away and train up your teenagers is, is crazy. Um, we're going to watch a video right now. Um, has anyone ever heard of the Bible Project? Anyone heard of Bible Project? They are fantastic. I'm really great, grateful to see so many hands. This is, uh, I mostly just wanted to be able to introduce this to some people who haven't uh, heard it, but they've become so popular. It's really great. Um, they, they have these videos and podcasts that are super helpful um, for people like me who can't like really fully picture how a book of the Bible works. You can watch this video and you're like, oh, I see how the book works. And so I want to watch the one for uh, the book of Daniel. Help us to, um, to see a little bit more of the structure and, um, and how this is going to go. And it's a perfect intro for how... Uh, um, how the rest of the series is going to go. It'll set us up uh, perfectly. So let's go ahead and watch this Bible Project video together. Thank you. The book of Daniel 
The story set right after Babylon's first attack on Jerusalem, and they had plundered the city and its temple and taken a wave of Israelites into exile. Among them were four men from the royal family of David, Daniel, who's later named Belteshazzar, and his three friends, who you probably know by their Babylonian names, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. This book tells of their struggles to maintain hope in the land of their conquerors. The book's design seems pretty simple at first. Chapters 1 through 6 contain stories about Daniel and his friends in Babylon, while chapters 7 through 12 contain the visions of Daniel about the future. But this two-part shape is made even more interesting by another design feature, and that's the book's language. It begins in Hebrew, the language of the Israelites, but chapters 2 through 7 are written in Aramaic, a cousin language to Hebrew spoken widely among the ancient empires. But then in chapters 8 through 12, it goes back to Hebrew. This design shows how chapters 2 through 7 are a coherent section, but it also highlights the importance of chapters 2 and 7 for understanding the later chapters of the book. Let's just dive in. Chapter 1 introduces the basic tension of the first half of the book. Daniel and his friends, they're really wise and capable, and they're recruited to serve in the royal palace of Babylon. But they're pressured to give up their Jewish identity by living and eating like Babylonians and violating the Jewish food laws found in the Torah. So they refuse, and they choose faithfulness to the Torah, and that puts them in danger. But God delivers them, and they end up being elevated by the king of Babylon. After this begins the Aramaic section, which you'll see has this really cool symmetrical design. So first, the king of Babylon has a dream that, it turns out, only Daniel is able to interpret. It's about a huge statue made of four types of metal, and it symbolizes a sequence of kingdoms, and the head is Babylon. But then a huge rock comes flying in, and it shatters the statue, and it becomes this huge mountain. Now, this dream is the first of many symbolic visions in the book, and this one introduces the basic storyline of them all. Daniel says that the statue represents a train of human kingdoms following from Babylon, and they will all fill God's world with violence. But one day, God's kingdom will come and will confront and humble the arrogant kingdoms of this world and fill the world with the healing justice of God's reign and rule. After this, chapter 3 tells the famous story of Daniel's three friends who refused to bow down and worship a huge idol statue, which, like the statue in chapter 2, represents the king and his imperial power. And so the friends are persecuted, they're thrown into a fiery furnace, but God delivers them from death and they're exalted by the king who now acknowledges their God as the true one. After this come a pair of stories about two Babylonian kings, the father, Nebuchadnezzar, and then his son, Belshazzar. They're both filled with pride because of their imperial power. And so, like in chapter 2, God warns them both through dreams and then visions, which, also like chapter 2, only Daniel can interpret. He says that both kings are to humble themselves before God, and both kings arrogantly resist. So Nebuchadnezzar is stricken with madness. He becomes like a beast in the field. But then he humbles himself before God, and his humanity returns to him. He's restored as king. This is in contrast with his son, Belshazzar, who doesn't humble himself before God, and he's assassinated that very night. Now, these two stories draw this imagery from Genesis chapters 1 and 2 and Psalm 8, where humans are depicted as the royal image of God. He's given them authority to rule over the beasts of the field and the birds of the air on behalf of God, who is the world's true king. But when human kingdoms forget that, when they rebel and make themselves and their power into a God, they become less than human, like violent beasts who will face God's justice. 
Which brings us to chapter 6, the pair of chapter 3. And this time it's Daniel who's being persecuted because he refuses to pray and worship the king as a god. And so like the friends, he's sentenced to death and he's thrown into a lion's den. But God delivers him from the beasts and like the friends, the king exalts Daniel and praises his god. Which brings us to chapter 7. It's the pair of chapter 2 and the center of the book where all its themes come together. It's another dream, but it's Daniel's this time. And ironically, he can't understand the dream until an angelic messenger explains it to him. He sees a series of four beasts, one like a lion, then like a bear, then one like a winged leopard, each of these symbolizing an arrogant kingdom. And last of all is a super beast, identified as a really evil empire. And it has lots of horns, a common symbol for kings in the Old Testament. And there's one specific horn, who is an image of an arrogant king who exalts himself above God and persecutes God's people. Now they are symbolized by a figure called the Son of Man, who's an image for both God's covenant people, but also for their king from the line of David. But then all of a sudden, God, who's called the Ancient of Days, comes and he sets up his throne. He destroys the super beast and he exalts the Son of Man on the clouds where he comes up to sit at God's right hand and share in God's rule over the nations. We can look back now and see how all of these stories in the first half fit together. The three stories of faithfulness despite persecution, these are meant to offer hope to God's suffering people among the nations. But they suffer because human kingdoms have rebelled against God and have become beasts. And so these visions encourage patience, that God's people are to wait for him to bring his kingdom and rule over our world and vindicate his suffering people. But it raises the question about when God is going to do that, and that's what these final three visions set out to explore. In chapter 8, Daniel has another vision about the final two beasts of chapter 7, but this time they're symbolized by a ram, who we're told is the image of the empire of the Medes and Persians, and then by a goat, who's an image of ancient Greece. And out of the goat come a whole bunch of horns, one of which symbolizes the evil king from chapter 7. And we're told more about him, that he will attack Jerusalem and exalt himself above God and defile the temple with idols. However, in the end, he will be destroyed by God, who will exalt his people and his kingdom. Now, by chapter 9, Daniel is very puzzled, especially as to when all of this is going to take place. And so he consults the scroll of the prophet Jeremiah, where God said that Israel's exile would only last 70 years. So for Daniel, the 70 years is almost up. And so he asks God to fulfill his promise soon. But an angel comes and informs him that Israel's sin and rebellion has continued. And so their time of exile and oppression will continue on seven times longer than Jeremiah envisioned. Daniel is deeply disturbed by this, and he has one final vision. We're shown the same sequence of kingdoms. It's Persia, then Greece, and Alexander the Great, followed by lesser kings, all leading up to this final king of the north, who will invade Jerusalem, set up idols in the temple, and exalt himself above God. But then, all of a sudden, this king comes to ruin. Now, there's been endless debate about what all of these visions refer to. Many see a clear connection to the exploits of the Syrian king Antiochus in the 160s BC. He killed many faithful Jews in Jerusalem and set up idols in the temple. Others think it points forward to the Roman Empire's role in the execution of Jesus and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70. And still others think it will be fulfilled in future events that have yet to happen when Jesus will return. Now the problem is that the symbols and the numbers, they don't quite match any of these views perfectly. But it opens up the possibility that in a sense they are all right. 
The book of Daniel has been designed to offer hope to all future generations of God's people. It did so in the days of Antiochus' empire, and it has ever since. This is why Jesus could use imagery from Daniel to describe and confront the oppressive leaders he confronted in Jerusalem. This is why John, the visionary who wrote the Revelation, could adapt Daniel's visions and apply them to Rome of his day and also all future oppressive empires. And so the point of Daniel is that all generations of readers can find here a pattern and a promise. It's a pattern that human beings in their kingdoms become violent beasts when they glorify their own power, when they redefine right and wrong, and don't acknowledge God as their true king. But Daniel also holds out a promise that one day God will confront the beast. He will rescue his world and his people by bringing his kingdom over all nations. And so for every generation, this book speaks a message of hope that should motivate faithfulness. And that's what the book of Daniel is all about. So we have a theme of hope, and there is hope indeed. And, and th- throughout the next few weeks, we're going um, to hear all these stories and, and be able to see um, how that hope applies to us today. But I just have a question. Um, well, I guess I should say the reason that there is hope for us today is because we are still exiles. Does anyone feel like they're in exile right now? It's kind of tough because like, we're like, well, you know, we're actually kind of comfortable. Things seem to be pretty good. I was born here. Everything's fine. But uh, we, we, don't, we don't live like... Um, we don't live comfortably because of our culture or because of our country or things like that. Like we might not be under this kind of siege of, of a threat of violence all around us, uh, but we have a spiritual enemy. We have a spiritual enemy who, who has taken us away from the comfort of our king, the security of our king and his kingdom. Um, and we are living in a world that is not like um, where we're supposed to be. Um, so, um, as odd as this might be, I have a song that I wrote that I would like to play for you. Um, so I'm going to use the piano and the mic over there. And this is just um, a song. It's... Pretty much Psalm 13. Will you hide your face from me? 
long Am I defeated by my enemy? How long, O oh Lord Will you forget me forever? How long, O oh Lord My soul's not getting better defeated by my enemy how long oh Lord will you forget me forever how long oh Lord my soul's not getting to win 
I'm still trusting in your steadfast love, your steadfast love. And my heart sings of what you saved me from, saved me from. Oh, depression. tried to hide selfishness all the times that I've lied dark panic the spirit of suicide but I've trusted in your steadfast love your steadfast love gave me all I was in need of, in need of. I'm still trusting in your steadfast love, your steadfast love. And my heart sings what you saved me from even when the war is not done and this song speaks to the truth that the war is not over yet. The psalm says that, that, that there's still a battle going on. God, why is my enemy still have power over me? Why is there still this deep, oppressive force that is happening? And you know what's really great news is that we don't have to just suffer in the exile. We do have hope. Just like the video was showing us through Daniel, there is hope because we have Jesus to look forward to. Praise God that I'm not stuck in my sin. Praise God that I'm not stuck in my desperation. But Jesus rescued me from it. And Jesus says this in John uh, John 15, verse 18 and 19. He says, if the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. The world would love you as one of its own if you belonged to it, but you're no longer part of the world. I chose you to come out of the world, so it hates you. When we act like Christians, when we really are Christians, the world around us isn't going to like us. It's not. There will be individuals who see what God is doing in us and will be compelled by it and will be drawn near to him, but the world's structure as a whole they're not into worshiping God. They're into worshiping me. <laughs> they're into worshiping myself. So when we say your life is not your own, you belong to a creator God, that is an offensive statement to the world. And, and they're going to hate us. And a chapter later, Jesus says in John 16, 33, he says, I've told you all of this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrow, but take heart because I have overcome the world. And Paul says it well um, in Ephesians uh, chapter 6, verse 12. He says, For we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil 
evil, evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. He's not even pinning it down to a person. He's like, oh, a person? No, that's, that's the target of our love. That should be the object of our affection, another human being. No, they're all motivated by some deep evil spiritual force that is trying to trying to use them to destroy you, trying to use them to destroy your faith. He says, we don't fight against flesh and blood, but we do have a serious enemy. Um, and so I want to encourage us, just like Daniel, we, we are exiles in this world. We belong to a different home. Once, once Jesus became our king, our, the kingdom that we belong to is now in heaven. And we get bits and pieces of that here on earth. It's fantastic to be in a group, in a, in a gathering like this, and to feel a little piece of heaven. But, but until we see him face to face, this world is not our home. Our citizenship is there. And, and like I, I, I might have an address here, but that, that's not going to last. This, this world is, is not going to last. I have a, um, a little bit of a personal tradition uh, last week, I was um, in Santa Cruz at, for, for um, Youth for Christ. They were doing a summer camp there, and, and one of the days we went to the beach. And I, and I have a personal tradition of going to the beach, and there, there's the shoreline, there's the tide washing up and washing away. And, you know, you build a sandcastle, and that's, that's fun. And, and, but, but in a similar way, like, I'll write my name. And then the shore comes up, or the tide comes up, and it's gone. And I'll write sin. It's gone. And you could build as elaborate of a sandcastle as you want. And it might take 10 minutes for the tide to take it out. Like, as awful as it is, as much oppression and evil as there is in the world, God has called us to, to, be, to, be, um, to be lights in, in the darkness. Um, and we have this hope because just like Daniel in Babylon, he's even telling Nebuchadnezzar, look, yeah, you are a great king, but you're not going to last. Because I serve one king that he calls the ancient of days, the one who is eternal, the one who's going to last forever. Your kingdom looks really nice, and you may have captured us, but the God that we serve, he's going to win. He's going to win. Um, so let's, let's go out in that hope today. I want to I pray with you, and then we have a few announcements. Lord God, I thank you um, for the hope that you give us, that we don't have to be crushed by the weight of anxiety or, 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 or sin or, or pressure from around us. We don't have to be crushed by real, actual enemies who hate us because of our faith. But God, um, we are eternally secure in your hands. God, that we may be physically crushed and beaten in this life, but, but you give us hope far beyond what we can see with our own eyes. God, help us to trust in you. Help us to have faith um, like Daniel and like Rad, uh, Radshak, Meshach, and Abednego, that they, they trusted you no matter what the trials they were facing. God, so allow us, even in our exile here on earth, God, allow us to trust you with that hope. We ask that you would use us as we go forward from here to be your light into this dark place, God. Um, to rejoice when we see other light around us, um, and to pray for, um, for the darkness to be turned to light, um, to pray for those who are currently motivated by some evil force, God, to, for them to change their allegiance, to become citizens of heaven, to, to become um, 
children in the family of God. We love you, Lord. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Here you go. I'm back. So I just have a couple of announcements, a couple of quick ones. A uh, reminder that uh, July 10th is our name adoption Sunday. Oh my goodness, I'm so excited that it's finally happening. You have no idea. So, uh, but more details on that uh, will be coming, but just mark your calendars. It's going to be in the morning, so right after church. Um, and then also this, is it already this Wednesday? Oh my gosh, yeah, this when I, well no, I'm talking about the time when we light things on fire, Yeah. Um, so Wednesday is our family fireworks night. Um, it starts at 8 with music and food and um, some lawn games and things like that. Um, but then after that, we're going to light things on fire. So uh, starting with kids with sparklers, it's all safe, I promise. It's California. Everything is safe. <laughs> that's how it happens here. Um, nothing leaves the ground, that sort of thing. Um, so that's this Wednesday, 8 o'clock. It's going to be out there in the front parking lot area. Um, and then the third announcement kind of is similar to that. First, I want to, um, so it's summer, right? And in the summer, it's hot. I don't know if you guys know that. Uh, this last week, it was really hot. It was like over 100 degrees. I felt really bad for Bible Day camp being when it was like 104. But um, what's really awesome is that most of the days during the fireworks booth, it's like 80-something. So, I want to tell you that I know how excited you are about being outside in the summer. Um, we need help. We're not, um, there, there's perks to helping us out at the fireworks booth. Now, the fireworks booth, the reason that both of us are up here is he's youth, I'm music. Um, and uh, the fireworks booth um, benefits both of our ministries. It helps send kids to camp, helps us buy equipment. We're kind of, our equipment, it kind of, some of it came with the building, so we're still kind of upgrading, yeah, um, so it really helps us out, um, but it does take a lot of helpers, especially on July 3rd and especially the 4th. That's when about 50% of the sales happen. Um, up, leading up to that, it's, it's fairly, um, fairly slow, but as of right now, we have like one person signed up to help us, but you get to hang out with us, so I mean, why wouldn't you want to come? Um, plus you get snacks and we're totally not bribing you. Um, but you get entered into a drawing for a hundred dollar gift card if you help us. Um, what was the other thing? Oh, you get a 10% discount on a purchase. So it is a lot of fun. It really is. And the weather is really going to be way nicer than it could be. So we're really excited. Um, we're not begging you, <laughs> but maybe a little bit. <laughs> rather dramatically. Um, so, you're so dramatic. Um, <laughs> so, if you are interested in helping out, we have some sign-ups at the back table. We're going to just meet really briefly in the office if you're interested, if you have questions at all, um, or go to myarcf.com forward slash fireworks. Um, we would love you forever and ever. Okay, I think that's all I got. You want to? We are dismissed. Go out in the love and the light of Christ. Mm-hmm. <laughs>